Well, let's continue in worship. Now in the proclamation of God's word, I want to invite you to take your Bible, turn with me to the gospel according to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 this morning. Some of you have figured out by now that there's no point in sitting down because you're going to turn around and have to stand right back up. So I want to invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we read the story of the Good Samaritan. It begins in verse 25 and extends to verse 37. Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And so who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him, and then they departed, leaving him half dead. Not by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed also to the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you, you need, I will send, I will repay when I come back. Now which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Father, for this word, for this, this ancient story with such profound relevance. I pray, Father, that you would uh, teach it to us through your Holy Spirit, not simply so that we have uh, a better understanding of this parable, but, Father, so that we are equipped to go and do likewise. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now you can be seated. Farmer, uh, poet, and, and writer Wendell Berry uh, wrote a, a book. It was full of essays. Uh, it had a very strange title. It was called, What Are People For? What are people for? An odd question. Have you uh, ever had anybody ask you, what are you for? It's, just doesn't, it's not a question that we ask, but, but he put it in the context of, of a book of essays. Because I, I actually find it a very interesting uh, title and question because it assumes that human beings, that we all have a purpose. We're here for a reason. Uh, that were not simply accidents, just existing, taking up oxygen and, 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 and evolving into something else. Each person, uh, according to the scriptures, has a purpose and a dignity and a reason for being here. What are people for? Well, that got me to thinking this week uh, to ask a, a little bit of a question with a different slant, and that's the question... What are Christians for? What are Christians for? Uh, there's this general purpose and calling uh, for every follower of Jesus. It's kind of the same mindset. It's an odd question at first, but then it assumes that there is a reason that believers are, are here in the world. Speaker and writer Andy Crouch, whose books, by the way, I highly recommend, says that every single Christian has three callings, without exception. We have three different callings. Number one, he says, is the fundamental call of being God's image bearers. Now, now what he means by that is, is that we are a people 
who uh, resemble, as Christians, we are people who are called to be, uh, resemble, or ambassadors of Christ, that we're to resemble the Father. I, I call this the character calling. We're called to be something. Uh, second, he says, is the call of restoring the image of God. So number one, we are to be image bearers. And secondly, we are to restore the image of God. And what he means by this is that the image of God was shattered at the fall. And so we are called to restore the fallen image of God, which means things like we are a people who are on mission. Uh, we are people uh, who do evangelism. We're people who are involved in social justice. We are people who represent a kingdom that is not of this world. So we're ambassadors of God's kingdom, and yet we live in this particular fallen world. And I call this our missional calling. So the first part, uh, according to Crouch, is that we are something. It's We are to be something. And the second is we are to do something. Now I'll come to the third calling uh, a little later. But these first two callings uh, include something that we are, something that we do. Who are we becoming and what are we doing in the world? What are Christians for? Well, I think that Andy Crouch is, is right on this, and I thought about those first two callings in light of the Great Commission. Now, if you think about the Great Commission, there's, there's literally two versions of it in the Scriptures, which are a little different from one another, but when you put them together, when you put them side by side, uh, well, it kind of gives a little interesting slant on what Christians are for. So let's look at the passages together. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 alongside of Matthew 28. Acts 1 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now when you look at those things together, if you look at the first one, the Acts passage, it says that we will receive power, which means we will receive something outside of ourselves to be able to do something that we could never do on our own. And what are we given power to do? Well, he says you will receive power, and when you receive that power, you will be my witnesses. Notice he doesn't say you will do witnessing. He says you will be, you will be my witnesses. So, so it's something that we are. It's something that we are. Uh, we are living testimonies to the truth of the gospel. And so we're going to do that, it says, basically wherever we are, from Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In other words, as followers of Jesus, we're to be different. A little different. In fact, the word witness is the word uh, for martyr, right? What's a martyr? It's those who have died for their faith. And so as, as uh, followers of Jesus, we have died to our old ways. And, uh, and we are therefore being restored to being God's image bearers. So our, our new life is, is to be a witness that spreads just simply by being different. All right, now look at the second one. Look at the second one. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, and therefore Go. Well, this one's doing, right? The first one's we're, we are to be something. The second one's we're to do something. And, and they both go hand in hand together, right? So we're to go and make disciples, go and restore God's image in the world and his image bearers. So, so I think, man, he's right on track, uh, Andy Crouch. So if, if we apply that reality to the biblical virtues is what we're doing in this sermon series uh, called Character Matters. Uh, if we apply the virtue of kindness to that, then it means that kindness, all these virtues involve being something and 
doing something. Now, I, I chose kindness because is there anything that is more needed today in our world? My goodness, what a mess, right? I mean, when our social media posts are, are so filled with vitriol and rants against everything and against everyone that we are against, right? It's just, it's just rampant. It's exhausting. Every time you turn on the news, there's divisiveness, there's angry people, there's, there's people that are against this group of people, and this group of people is against this group of people, and that is our culture today. But the sad thing is that it's also true within the body of Christ, right? It includes brothers and sisters. If you go on those same social media platforms and you look at what Christians are saying, it, it's hardly any different than, than what the world is saying. We're just aiming our target at somebody else, and usually it's someone within the church. Some other person whose theology we don't agree with or who, who practices their Christian faith different from our own. And we are not fulfilling our, 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 our cause, our very reason for being here when we do it. What are Christians for? Not that, right? That, that, that is not just a small blunder, by the way. That is a, a horrific tragedy. We look like the world when we do that. So this sermon series, Character Matter, we're, we're taking various virtues that basically say, well, let's recover these kinds of virtues so that we can become a certain kind of people who do certain kinds of things so that we look a lot different than the world around us for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And this is not like, let's find something new to do. This is like, let's go find the old stuff. Let's walk the old paths. So before we do that, uh, specifically with this passage, I want us to define our, uh, define our term, kindness. Uh, what do we mean by kindness? And we need to define it according to the Bible. Because if you ask 100 different people, uh, how would you define kindness? You're, you're liable to get very similar answers. Uh, kindness is basically being nice, uh, doing nice things, doing random acts of kindness. Right? Kindness is, is the person who pays it forward when you're at Starbucks. Man, I love when that happens. Basically, it's the opposite of being a jerk, right? You're either kind or you're a jerk, and if you're a jerk, you're not being kind. But the, prob the problem with those definitions is, number one, that's not biblical kindness. The problem with those definitions is that anybody and, and everybody can muster up, at least for a moment, the ability to be kind to someone else. And so there's nothing special required of that. Not only that, but you can fake it, right? You can fake being kind. You can come to church and fake it. You can fake it out there in public. You can fake it at the family reunion. Wherever you are, you can fake it, at least for a time. Look, I just need you to be kind. I know you hate these people, but just, just be kind. And so you go and you smile on the outside, you look like you're being kind, but on the inside, you're going, I hate your guts. Right? That's not kindness. That's not kindness. I'm talking, the kind of kindness that I'm going to talk about this morning, let me just tell you right now that it is impossible for you to do it. You cannot do it, at least not in your own strength. In fact, the kindness I'm going to talk about is miraculous. Usually when we think of something miraculous, we think of, you know, healing powers or, or something incredibly supernatural. But the kind of kindness that I'm talking about is, is actually very supernatural. The Bible, in fact, says that, that kindness is a fruit of the Spirit, which means this, that it's something that the Holy Spirit has to do in us. It's something that the Holy Spirit has to cultivate within us and, and work out of us. 
So we can't do it. It requires a work of God to be kind, at least according to the scriptures. So the world's application of kindness is basically this, just be nicer. Occasionally do something nice. That's awesome, by the way. I'm not opposed to that. We could use a whole lot more of that. Do nice things for people, right? Maybe not say what you're thinking uh, in social media network opportunities. Just, just sometimes kindness means don't say anything. But, but doing random acts of kindness, being nice. Uh, yeah, let's all strive as Christians to be nicer people. But the problem is, is that, that that does not require the Holy Spirit. Now, does it? To be nice, uh, that's basically just being Texan. And there's tons of nice people in the world who, who don't follow Jesus. So the kindness I'm talking about requires a work, a miraculous work of God in our lives. So biblical kindness has to extend, obviously, much further and deeper than being nice. In fact, when we look at the scriptures, we see Jesus uh, doing things like confronting the religious leaders of his day, and he's calling them things, right? He's like, oh, you bunch of hypocrites, you brood of vipers, right? You whitewashed tombs. Now, if you were to ask one of those religious leaders, hey, do you think Jesus, isn't he a nice guy? I don't think they would have said so. I think they would have been like, no, he is not a nice guy. And yet, I submit to you that there has been no one kinder on this planet than Jesus Christ. And so we're not talking about niceness. We're talking about kindness. Sometimes kindness confronts while niceness just kind of smiles right and remains silent or ignores things so here's my definition of biblical kindness this isn't original i got this from uh, geneva college but i thought well that pretty much sums it up kindness is selfless compassionate and merciful Here's the key. Its greatest power is revealed in practice to our enemies and among the least of these. Now, I want you to notice that definition. First, kindness is something that we are, right? It's selfless, compassionate, merciful, and it's something that we do, and its greatest power is revealed to who we do it to, which in this particular definition involves our enemies and the least of these. I think that's dead on with what the scriptures are going to teach us this morning. Love your neighbor, show kindness to everyone for a perfect emblem of biblical kindness. We need to look no further than Jesus. Colossians 3.12 says it like this, Therefore, as because you're God's chosen people, because you're holy and dearly loved, therefore clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And I, I believe that every single one of those words listed there, they, they go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other, right? You can't be kind and not have compassion, or you can't be kind and not have patience. So, so all of those things kind of intermingle, and they become what we are, and because of who we are, it's expressed in the things that we do. I love the passage. You know, you have this thing. Remember in the old days when it was like Christians need to dress a certain way, right? I remember going to Falls Creek and there was a dress code at Falls Creek. One of my least, uh, I got so many stories about that. And I think, how should a Christian dress? What should we wear? Well, according to this, here's what we should wear. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's the only thing you'll find in Scripture about what to wear. It's a set of things that we are to be and to do. We do it. This is how we're to dress in the world. This is how we're to dress in the church. 
to dress at work, to dress in the marketplace, to dress at the home place, every place. This is what we put on. But as the definition states and the Bible demonstrates, the place or the people to whom kindness is, is focused on is, is most powerfully worked out among our enemies and among the least of these. Biblical kindness responds to people who have hurt us in the past with the surprising response of kindness instead of vengeance, instead of payback. Luke 35, 635 says it like this, love your enemies. We know that passage. Love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God is kind to ungrate, the ungrateful and the evil. So the idea here is in the context of loving your enemies. right? To love your enemies, therefore, means to be kind for them as God is kind to us and to his enemies and to those who are evil. And in the same way, when we do that, we become sons. We, we look like the Father. We resemble the Father. So kindness is, is an aspect of the character of God. Love your enemies defines what it means to be kind by responding, by doing good for people instead of getting even. Do good to them, he says. Lend to them without expecting a return. Paul uh, told Titus to uh, use his behavior to adorn the gospel. Right? Nothing does that better than kindness. God wants us to be kind. Right? The Bible says, while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. He was kind to us. When? When we didn't deserve it. This is why biblical kindness requires the work of the Holy Spirit, because any pagan can be nice, right, up to a point, until you put them down, until you cut them off on the highway. But, but to be kind as a response to that, that's not natural. That's supernatural. Biblical kindness is, is costly. It is counterintuitive. It's a counterintuitive response to meanness. Right? It's, it's not a virtue in a vacuum, right? It is a surprising response to mistreatment or hurt. That's kindness. That's kindness. Biblical kindness. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love is kind. Meaning it's not just patient when mistreated. Not just patient, right? But, but it's quick to pay it back with kindness. Isn't that amazing? Now you need the Spirit, right? 2 Timothy chapter 2, 24 and 25 says this, All the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. That probably should be something. If you spend a lot of time on social media, you might want to put this at the top of your computer screen. All of, of the Lord's servants, that's all of us, must be not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Man, so, so here are a couple uh, of truths for us. First of all, the opposite of kindness is to be quarrelsome. Right? We see the op this is the opposite of kindness. Right? Just go roll through Twitter if you want to see what kindness is not. Kindness involves patiently enduring evil, correcting our opponents with gentleness. So kindness is... Listen to what that, that teaches us, right? Kindness is not soft. It's not passive. It's not sweeping things under the rug, right? It still corrects the opponent, but it does so with a certain temperament. It does so with a sense of gentleness. It's not about going, I'm angry, and I'm going to prove to you that you're wrong and I'm right. No, we're correcting them for the sake of their souls, not for the sake of winning an argument. 
the goal is not to win an argument, but to win people. So that, that's, that's the point. So kindness is a sense, it's a weapon of our warfare against the demonic assault of, of hatred and outrage that exists in our culture today. Well, in Jesus' day, kindness was also in short supply, just as much as it is today, maybe a lot worse. Everybody, everybody, it seems, in the scriptures in the time of Jesus had enemies. Right? The Jews, they hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans, they hated the Jews. Both of them hated the Romans. The Romans, you know, they, they didn't really care for the Jews. They kind of tolerated them. They liked them because it helped with business, but they didn't really care for them as people. And the Jewish religion of the day, if you go inside the religious realm, it was really no different, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they argued all the time, didn't really care for one another. Uh, there were followers of certain rabbis who would argue theology against other followers of certain rabbis, right? It was all based on how do you interpret the law? Well, you're wrong, we're right. The Essenes, the Essenes, just basically said, you know what, all you people are nuts, we're going out to the desert. We're getting away from all of you. Now, on many occasions, Jesus was asked to settle these theological disputes, right? People wanted to pigeonhole Jesus all the time, and they wanted to get him to the place to where he would take sides. I'm going to get Jesus on our side. We still do that to him today, by the way, right? We always say, Jesus, Jesus is on our side. Jesus would agree with us. Jesus always used it, however, as an opportunity to teach, usually about the kingdom of God, which was incredibly different than all of it. So Jesus is ushering in a third way. He's ushering in a kingdom of kindness where love and compassion abound in a world gone mad. Which brings me to this story. Jesus tells this story uh, about his kingdom of kindness. Jesus' parable is uh, called the Good Samaritan, which to a Jew was an was, uh, uh, oxymoron. Uh, Good Samaritan is told in response to a question about eternal life that came from a lawyer. Now when I say lawyer, uh, that's Luke's word for a scribe. Now, don't think of an attorney, right? Think, think of a scribe. A scribe's job was to study the law, to transcribe it, and scribes would write commentaries on it. In other words, they were very opinionated. They would write their commentaries basically saying this is what the law means, and then there would other, be other commentaries that would say different. So yes, this guy had strong opinions. He was familiar with all the various interpretations. He was great at arguing. Guys like this love to argue. They're all over the seminary, man. Go to the seminary sometime and just sit and listen to them. Everybody likes to argue with one another. In fact, verse 25 says that the man stood up to test Jesus. Now, and, and I don't, it doesn't tell us where this is, if it's a synagogue or what's going on here. But when a Jew stands up to argue a point, right, that means he's going to argue with, he's passionate about what he's trying to, to do and trying to say. Maybe he's angry. Maybe, we don't know, maybe Jesus said something that pushed his buttons right before this. And so he stands up, kind of like this defiant little, let's go, man, let's go. Let's do this. And he says, teacher. Doesn't recognize him as Lord. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, this is a huge debated question in his day. So he's asking a theological question that is surrounded by a lot of theological debate. But Jesus turns around and he spins it and he makes it personal. Well, the problem here with the question is, is that he's already in trouble, isn't he? What must I do to inherit eternal life? So he's already in trouble with Jesus by thinking that salvation requires him to do something that he has to somehow earn it. And these Jews have argued over what that is. And so Jesus says, all right, 
Let's just go with that. You want to save yourself according to the law. Let's, let's start with the basics then. How do you read that? What does that mean to you? And he said, he, he pretty much nails it. And love God with all your, your, your heart, soul, your, your whole being, right? Love your neighbor, all the, all the big stuff. And then Jesus basically goes, well, there you go then. Go do that. Congratulations. That's what you, that's what you need to do to inherit eternal love, uh, eternal life. You need to love God and you need to love people with all of your heart and with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. Go do that. Now the lawyer knows full well that he's already fallen short. He knows that. Uh, Jesus isn't talking uh, surely about loving everyone like that. Right? So, so, so there's some people outside of this lawyer's circle that can't possibly include it under the umbrella of what Jesus is saying about loving people. So he wants to clarify. In fact, he says he wants to justify himself. So he's basically going, well, who are we talking about here? When you say love everybody with your whole being, who's that include? And so Jesus tells him this story. So there's this guy who's traveling along on this notorious path known for violence, and sure enough, he gets jumped, and uh, he's beaten, he's robbed, he's stripped, and he's left for dead. Now, Jesus doesn't give us a whole lot of detail on the, on the man in the story. Most likely, uh, if you look at the context, this man was, was most likely intended in the story to be Jewish, which means that his inner circle was exclusively Jewish, right? Now, luckily for him, the first person that comes along after he's been beaten happened to be a priest. Oh, this guy's in my circle. Right? This guy's a priest. This is a man of God. Surely he's going to stop in hell. But he sees the man, this, this priest, sees the man in the ditch, and he crosses to the other side of the street, just kind of like, woo-doo-doo-doo, and keeps going. All hope's not lost, because here comes a Levite. A Levite. Maybe a priest is understandable, right? Because a priest is probably on his way to, to do priestly things. A Levite, you know what a Levite is? A Levite is a priest off duty. That's why one's called the priest, one's called a Levite. A Levite's from the priestly family. They basically have the same occupation. But this guy, is, is, he's not on duty. Surely he can make time to help, right? But the Levite was like, oh no, nope, nope. If I help this man, right, things can go really wrong. Maybe it's a setup. Maybe he's got friends around the corner. You know, they, people do that kind of thing. It's a big scam. Maybe he's a Samaritan. I mean, you can't tell. He's all bloody. Can we really tell? He's stripped and everything. And, and if it's a Samaritan, I don't deal with Samaritans. Let his own people help him. And then, speaking of Samaritans, here comes one. And the guy's got to be thinking, great, 0 for 3, 0 for 3. Samaritan comes along and it says that he has compassion on him. And he shows him this incredible kindness. He binds his wounds, he pours expensive oil and wine on them, he puts him on his own animal, he, he's now, that means he's walking, he spends the entire night with him, whatever he is doing that he was planning on doing that day has been put on hold, and not only, he's like, man, I, I would be with you, I'd stay with you to the end, but this innkeeper's going to help you out, I'm going to pay everything, I'm going to pay everything, pay all your bills. Now, here's what I want to do at this point. I want us to pause here, and I want to draw out some principles about kindness. Principles about kindness that I get from the text. Number one is that kindness flows out from compassion. It flows out from compassion. Now, I can imagine at this point that the, the lawyer 
right? He's putting himself in the story. When Jesus tells a story, that's what we have the tendency to do. We're going, well, am I, am I more like the priest? Am I more like the Levite, the Samaritan? You know, uh, who am I in this story? And then fortunately for him, the Samaritan happens to be the hero of the story. Now, now I imagine that we're no different. When we hear this same story, right, we assume that the moral of the story is basically this. So what Jesus is getting at, here's the moral, be more like the Samaritan. Be good like the Samaritan. Be nice as he was nice. But I don't think that's the point at all. The point Jesus is making is that both the lawyer as well as you and me, if we have a role to play in the story, we, you and me, are the person lying in the ditch. That's us. We're, we're, we're the ditch dweller. Because a lawyer wants to know, right, if you put it in its context, a lawyer wants to know what must I do to gain eternal life. And Jesus is basically saying, look, here's the thing. You can't get there by the law. You can't save yourself any more than the man in the ditch can save himself. You have been assaulted. Every single one of us, we have been assaulted by Satan, by our own sinful nature, by the world, right? Those, those realities have left us beaten up. They have robbed us of any hope. They have stripped us from any sort of self-justification, and we all are lying in the ditch, dead in our trespasses and sins. That's us. That's us. That's you and me in the ditch. That's you and me lying in the gutter, unable to save ourselves. And it takes humility to admit that, doesn't it? When it comes to our spiritual abilities, our picture is lying, helpless, in a gutter. That's us. And when you're in that place of broken despair, the truth of the matter is religion can't help you. Religion can't help you. Religion says, man, no, you got to do this on your own. You need to pull yourself up out of the gutter by your own bootstraps. You need to clean yourself up. You need to heal your own wounds. Religion cannot help. It will walk right past you. And leave you in the gutter. Religion says God helps those who help themselves. Religion says if you have nothing to offer, you're of no use to me. Religion says you got beat up and you probably deserve it. It's probably your fault. So you fix it. And so the Good Samaritan comes along. We're not the Good Samaritan. That role is taken up by Jesus. Jesus is the good Samaritan and he comes and he doesn't bring the demands of the law. What does he do? He stoops down into the gutter with us. And he meets us in the ditch of our own sinfulness. Now you know, right? You know as a Samaritan he re received plenty of abuse from the Jews in his day. If the man in the ditch is a Jew, which he likely is, then that's his enemy in the ditch. Perhaps he recognizes him. Maybe he's going, oh, that dude, that dude's the one who talks trash to me in the market all the time. That guy. And it's not that Jesus here responds to him according to how the culture says this group of people are to be treated towards this group of people. It's how Jesus responds to us. Because we are, we are sinners against God. We are enemies against God. And yet Christ responds towards us with loving kindness. While we are throwing abuse at him, he comes and he stoops down to us and he bandages our wounds and he pours the wine of his own blood to atone over them. He puts the oil of the spirit over them 
And he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, well, there you go. You're saved. Bye. No, he doesn't leave us in the ditch. He picks us up. He sets us on his own horse, which means that he switches places with us. And he pays every expense related to our healing and salvation and recovery. Nehemiah 9.17 says that you are a God of forgiveness, gracious, full of grace, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. And God's love and kindness and compassion are, are all mixed up with that word that we used in Psalm 63 that we saw, the word has said. It's that in God's kindness, loving kindness, doesn't come to us when we crawl out of the ditch in order to, to clean ourselves up. His loving kindness comes to the ditch where we're already at. We have the tendency to think God is mad at us because we're in the ditch. Right? And if we, if, we, if we happen to pull ourselves out of the ditch and we end up back in the ditch, we're like, oh, God's got to be mad. Got to be mad. Right? Do you, do you picture this good Samaritan at any point going, well, look at you. Look at, how did you get there? I bet you did something stupid. That's how we feel that God maybe thinks, but God doesn't do that. He comes to us in his kindness. He comes in his compassion and his mercy. God is a, is, his, his kindness flows to us out of his compassion. Ours is to do the same. Second thing I want you to see is this, is kindness. Kindness has no boundaries. Biblical kindness has no boundaries. The lawyer here, he wants to justify himself by asking the question, who's my neighbor? Right? He wants to set boundaries. He wants to narrow the field. Who is in and who is out? Who do I have to love and who not so much? And I'll admit to you, right? there's some people that are really difficult to be kind to. Some people just grate on your nerves. When I sat down to, to write this sermon, right, God's got this great sense of humor, I went to, I decided, you know, I'm going to go write this sermon at, at a coffee shop. I go to Fort Worth, I go to a coffee shop, I sit down, and I'm sitting there working on this sermon on kindness, and this woman comes in, and she sits, uh, you know, several seats down, table down, and she's got one of those ear things in where you talk on the phone, it's like you're talking to yourself. And I guarantee you that anybody within a block of that place could hear her. And I'm like going, and I'm sitting there going, would you shut up? I'm trying to write about kindness. <laughs> there are people that just, just grate on your nerves, right? Let me tell you who, who I have personally, right? This is confession time. Let me tell you the people do, that I have the most difficult time being kind to. Number one, people I disagree with. I've convinced myself that I'm pretty much right about everything. Just ask my family. They will tell you. And so when you say something that is clearly wrong, right, which means it's different than what I uh, believe, that, that uh, I feel that it is my job to correct you. That's just what I'm called to do. So, so winning debates and putting people in their place, right, is something that, that I kind of I enjoy. But that's not loving kindness, according to the scriptures, right? Being right is not the same thing as being righteous. What matters more is not that we put people in their place, but that we love them well. And that we win, the, the, we're going to win this culture war uh, that exists today by kindness, not by winning debates. Romans 2 4 says that it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. Do you think that if, if this kindness of God leads people to repentance, that all of a sudden, that you and me, by being unkind, are going to 
lead people to repentance? Do you think that people are all of a sudden going to come to repentance when we're going, you're an idiot. You people are idiots. You people don't know God. You people are godless. You people are, are, are horrific. Oh, well, let me follow your Lord then. No, if, if God's kindness leads people to repentance, then if we want to lead people to repentance, we probably ought to be kind. So sure, there are places, there are places where we have to stand without compromise, but that doesn't mean that we, we have to uh, do that with a sense of anger and not kindness. We need to recapture this sense of civility, which is another missing virtue in our day. It's fine to have a holy fire in your gut about things, but fire is, biblical fire is not meant to burn people down, to burn houses down, to burn anybody down. Biblical fire is a healing fire, is a reconciling fire. Use your passion for the glory of God, not for the winning of arguments. Let me tell you a second group of people uh, I, ha I have a tough time with. That's people I don't understand. Jeez. So many people. People I don't understand out there, right? For the life of me, I don't understand the way some people think the way they do. But that's part of the problem. Right? Because it's easier to write people off than it is to sit down and try to learn how they perceive things from their perspective, to see the world from, from, from their view, to put on their shoes for a bit. So instead of judging people because they don't think like me, perhaps it's more Christ-like to, to maybe listen instead of talking first. Uh, in her memoir uh, about her journey from being a committed lesbian to a committed Christian, Rosaria Butterfield uh, says as, as a non-Christian, before she became a believer, that her impression of evangelical Christians is that they were poor thinkers, that they were judgmental, that they were uh, uh, scornful, and they were afraid of diversity. And she is uh, publishing, she published a critique of evangelical Christians, and she put it in her local newspaper. So she received this enormous volume of responses, right? And so she, she decided that she was going to, at her desk, she was going to sort the responses. She had a box for her hate mail, and a box for fan mail. And as she's going through this hate mail, a Christian hate mail, there's another Christian hate mail, oh, here's one sympathetic fan. And she got a two-page response from a local pastor in the town. She says, quote, it was a kind and inquiring letter, unquote. She says it had warmth and civility to it in addition to probing questions. She couldn't figure out which box to put the letter in because in one sense it was like, well, it's not hatred, but it's also, you know, asking penetrating questions. So it sat there at the front of her desk. She says, quote, it was the kindest letter of opposition that I have ever received. It, it, its tone demonstrated that the writer wasn't against her, but was for her. And eventually, she contacted the pastor and became friends with him and his wife. And they began to invite her over for dinner. And she says, quote, they talked with me in a way that didn't make me feel erased. And their friendship and non-judgmental approach uh, to this is what was absolutely vital in her coming to faith and her journey of faith, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Third group of people that I struggle with is people that I don't deem as, as uh, worthy. People that I deem undeserving of kindness. There, there are people, because of their bad attitude, or their rotten disposition, or their ingratitude, or they're just annoying right? Utterly selfish. It's hard to treat them with kindness when you would prefer to kind of wring their necks. But, but, but here's the deal, right? Here's the deal. We have to remind ourselves that, that we are not exactly, we weren't exactly the most worthy people when Jesus saved us. We, at the point when he saved us, were enemies of God. 
yet he showed us kindness anyway. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, God in Christ forgave you. So there's that point of going where I, I don't know, man, this person doesn't deserve my kindness. I didn't deserve Christ's kindness. Besides, uh, we, we may be saved, but we're not exactly sanctified fully yet, right? So, so we're still a lot of times needing the kindness of God. We haven't arrived. Luke 6, 35, right? We read this earlier, but let me read it again. But love your enemies, do good to them, lend them without expecting to get anything back. For your reward may be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because He is kind and ungrateful. He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. That's us. So we're to love our enemies. Oh, man, but there's one more, man. This guy, there's one guy. Uh, if I'm just being honest, he's the hardest person I've ever had to deal with. And being kind to him is the hardest person. I just, ugh. I'm talking about myself. And I bet you can relate, man. If someone, if someone other than you said the things to you that you say to yourself, now you'd probably want to take them out back. Right? You'd want, you would literally want to fight them. You would, it, 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 at, at minimum, you'd be like, you're not my friend. You'd cut them off. You'd defriend them. You, you say things to yourself that is so horrific that when you do it, you're doing the devil's work for him. He's the accuser of the saints. And yet you go around accusing yourself. I do. Man, we beat ourselves up. We throw ourselves in the ditch. Nobody has a bigger influence on you than you. Nobody. You're the most influential person in your life. Nobody uh, talks more to you than you. Nobody. And so the words that you say... Now they have all kinds of power over you. Proverbs 18.21. Check this out. The tongue has the power of life and death. Words have incredible power, which is why the Bible, Bible says that we're going to be judged by for every idle word spoken. God created the universe with his word. That's how powerful words are. In the same way, our words speak things into existence. Right? Not, not in the same kind of way as God, but in, in soul-shaping ways. Our words have the ability to bring life or death. We have the ability to tear people down and speak death over them or to encourage and speak life now, what happens when it's you that you're talking to? Right? What kind of words are you speaking over yourself? Words of life or words of death? Which one do you think Satan wants you to speak? Death, right? What do you think about Jesus? What do you think he wants you to speak? Life, right? If what you speak comes into existence, then that self-talk eventually becomes who you are. And so we need to let our self-talk to be informed by the gospel. And what does the Bible say about us? It says we're children of the Most High. We're children of God. We need to start being kind to ourselves because Christ has been kind to us. And our identity has not been determined by our past or what we think of ourselves. It's been determined by Him. So we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to remind ourselves that we are not our past. We are not our failure. We are not stupid. We are not the labels that we attach to ourselves or that we hear in the past and we have come to believe. Right? We are who Jesus says we are. And if you wouldn't let anybody else talk trash to you, then maybe you ought to stop doing it to yourself. By the way, you know, talking trash to yourself is not the same thing as being humble. Actually, it's pride because you're, you're basically saying, uh, I'm going to override what Jesus says about me. 
This is what I have to say. All right. Uh, third thing, and then I'll be done. Third thing about being kind is that kindness requires keeping in step with the Spirit. By that, of course, I have in mind Galatians 5.25 that says, live by the Spirit. If you, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit is kind of it's a picture of a dance, isn't it? Moves like Jagger. Who says Baptists don't dance? That was... You're like, well, Baptists shouldn't dance if that's what they do, if that's what it looks like. No, keep in mind here uh, that we are being led, the idea is we are being led by the Spirit. We're keeping in step with the Spirit. He is leading and He is guiding us. Now think about that. This Samaritan didn't just happen to be at the right place at the right time. He did not. It was a divine appointment. He, he didn't wake up that morning and decide, you know what, this is going to be a good day. I think I'm going to be a hero of kindness. Didn't happen. He woke up, and it says that he was journeying, and he was doing what he always does. Perhaps he did it every day. Maybe he took the same path to work or the market, and he sees a man in a ditch, and in that moment he is prompted by the Holy Spirit to act, to do something. You ever get that? The two religious guys uh, apparently were not prompted. In fact, Jesus says it like this. They just happened to be going by. This was not a, a, a religious, this was not a divine appointment for them. They were not prompted to do something, to act. The two religious guys were either not prompted because they didn't have the Spirit, or maybe they were prompted and they just pushed the Spirit's voice down and grieved the Spirit. I said at the beginning that... Uh, there are three callings, according to Andy Crouch, three callings for every Christian. But I never told you the third one. I'm going to give it to you now. Crouch says that our third calling, the third calling of every Christian, is to make most of today while it is still called today. Of course, that's a reference to Ephesians 5, 6, 15 and 16. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise but as the wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Uh, what Crouch means here is that within your ordinary day, your ordinary normal day, the Holy Spirit will guide you into divine appointments if you're living in a state of spiritual awareness, if you're listening. It may be as simple, by the way, it's not necessarily that you need to pull over on the side of the road and drag a guy out of a ditch. It may be as simple as a kind word spoken to a stranger, a simple word of encouragement, and you may, ne you may leave there and not even have a clue that, about the impact that you just left because the Spirit of God has taken that word in that moment through you, and because words have power, uh, they are being healed encouraged, and it was just like, oh, I needed that so bad. Uh, our job is, is simply to go through our day with our spirit antenna up. And the more you do that, the more you're intentional about that, the more, uh, the better you become at it. The more you will easily be able to feel and experience and know in your heart of hearts the spirit's promptings. And so Jesus gets to the end of the story, and now he hands the mic over to the lawyer, and he says, which of these three in the story proved to be a neighbor to the man in the ditch? Was it A, the priest? Was it B, the Levite? Or C, the Samaritan? What do you say? And the lawyer, man, he just, oh, he's cringing because he knows the right answer. And he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. And he's like, the one who showed mercy. I guess see. That Greek word mercy is the, the same as compassion or kindness. And I think the point that Jesus is doing here by throwing the ball in his court is, is would the lawyer see himself as the man in the ditch? 
unable to save himself. Who do you need right now? Would he see that Jesus was the good Samaritan, willing to offer him grace and truth as the answer to his question? Would he see that Jesus was the answer to where to find the eternal life that he was looking for? Not in a theological debate, but in a real-life relationship. And Jesus says to him, go and do likewise. Now that's just as impossible to do as the law. Only the believer can go and do likewise, because only the believer has the Holy Spirit. Perhaps Jesus is simply inviting him to go and try to do likewise and find out how quickly you cannot. And so Jesus gives him law to put an end, bring him to an end of himself. But either way, uh, to be kind requires a conversion of the heart. We have to accept the kindness of God towards us. Towards us. You may be here this morning, and uh, maybe through the whole time the Spirit is pointing out maybe people, maybe circumstances, maybe things that have happened to you in the past. Maybe things where you're going, okay, you know, you, I, how am I supposed to be kind in that particular situation? How do I respond in kindness when someone has done something so painful and harmful to me? Let me give you a scripture to meditate on. Ephesians 4, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That tells you how. That tells you how. We, we, we can't just put those feelings of pain and anger, we, we can't put them away. We, we don't have the ability to do that. We have to allow someone else to do that for us. Right? We have to let, let go and let Jesus take it away. It says let. It, it's, it's a passive verb. The NIV totally messes this up. But this is, the NIV tells you to do it. Uh, that's not in the text. The Greek says, no, you, it's, it's passive. You let this happen to you. You say, Holy Spirit, I can't do this. I need you to take this bitterness and this wrath and this anger and this, this, this desire I have to, to get even, to clamor and to slander, and I need you to take it away. I, don't, I need you to put it away. All malice, I need you to take that away from me. Because I can't do it. So what anger are you still holding on to? When people tell you, if you've ever been hurt, or you've ever been broken, or something in the past, and anybody ever says to you, you know what, you just got to get over it, man. You just got to get over it. Let me tell you something. That's horrific advice. That's not biblical advice. Biblical advice would be, you just need to give it to God. You just need to let Him take it away. Because you can't do it. You can't get over it. He's got to take it away. But the Spirit does a whole lot more than just simply take it away. He replaces it, doesn't He? Can you go back? Back to the verse, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So the Spirit takes away, but he also infuses us with the ability to replace bitterness and wrath and anger and malice with kindness and with tenderheartedness and forgiveness. And it all stems back to the cross, right? In the same way that Christ forgave us. It's supernatural. 
supernatural. It's got to be a work of God in us. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't be that kind of kind on your own. But with the Spirit of God, it's all, all things are possible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for uh, being so kind to us when we deserved it the least. You were kind to us when you saved us. But the fact of the matter is, is, is we need that kindness every single day because on any given day, uh, I know we do stuff, I know we do stuff that is, is not deserving of your continued loving kindness towards us. If you kept a record of wrongs, Lord, who could stand? But you keep forgiving you keep being merciful. You keep pouring out grace. And even, Father, when we are called to be kind and we continue to fail to do that, Lord, your, your kindness your kindness does not ever run out. So, Father, help us. Help us to, to do that. Maybe, Lord, today we need to take that, that scripture to heart and we just need to say, Lord, I got this person. I got this group of people that every time I think about them, I just I get angry. This particular political group, this particular social group, it just just burns me up. I need you. I just need you to take it away. I don't need that. I don't need that weighing me down. I don't need to be angry person. I don't need to be. Uh, so easily set off. Uh, Lord, make me the kind of person that my first gut reaction is not anger, but oh, kindness. They need Christ. They need Christ, Lord. You, you love me when I was your enemy. They're your enemy. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to love them the same way you love me. Do that work in us. We, we need the church to be that in this last day. When the love of most is grow cold, Father, may we be warm in the kindness of the Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.